Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corinne Pettit, and I'm here today with dermatologist Dr. Meyer Horn, who is the founder and medical director of Dermatology and Aesthetics, which is dedicated to providing state-of-the-art dermatology care to residents in the Chicagoland area. Dr. Horn has special interest in treating inflammatory diseases of the skin, which many of you know include psoriasis. He is also one of the foundation's leading supporters of our Team MPF Walk here in Chicago, which we're very grateful for his participation and support. We asked Dr. Horn here today to talk about the heterogeneous nature of psoriasis and why some treatments stop working for some but yet continue for others. Welcome, Dr. Horn. It's a pleasure to meet with you today. Uh, To start our conversation, can you please explain why psoriasis is considered to be a heterogeneous disease? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, Psoriasis is a heterogeneous disease because psoriasis is actually part of a disease condition called psoriatic disease. And psoriatic disease can actually affect multiple organs of the body. The most common one that we all know and see is definitely the skin, hence why most people know what psoriasis is, even though they don't know what it is when they see it, they've at least heard the word. Another very common expression of psoriatic disease is disease in the joints, which we call psoriatic arthritis, and somewhere between say 15 to 30% of skin psoriasis patients may also have psoriatic arthritis develop at some point in their course of disease or in their lifetime. But psoriasis is also heterogeneous because people who have psoriasis likely have the genetic predisposition to be affected by other inflammatory diseases, including things like inflammatory bowel disease, Um, other types of arthritis, including ankylosing spondylitis, which is a type of back arthritis, Um, not to mention other types of metabolic diseases, such as hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, which means that your cholesterol is too high. People who have psoriasis are also at bigger risk for obesity, alcohol abuse, as well as depression. So we don't know which is the chicken or the egg, but we do know that psoriatic diseases are very heterogeneous, meaning they can manifest in many different ways. They can affect multiple organs of the body, and also they don't select for just men or women or people of certain ancestral or or genetic backgrounds. Literally everyone in the world can be affected by psoriasis. In fact, maybe 2% of the population of the entire planet has the nature to have the disease. Great. And so um, switching gears here a little bit to talk about the pathways that make people more uh, predisposed to this disease, what are some of the more notable pathways currently identified as key contributors to the development of psoriatic disease? It seems like new pathways are continuing to be discovered. Well, to kind of start at At the bottom, people who get psoriatic disease probably have a family history of it. And then there are environmental factors that make it come out, such as stress, 
excessive alcohol use, certain infections, sometimes certain medications can bring on psoriasis, um, other lifestyle factors like weather or things that we haven't even figured out yet. But on top of that, we have in the last 15 to 20 years really mapped out the fact that psoriasis is caused by a number of different immune system abnormalities where our immune system cells, which are white blood cells of various types, may be releasing too many chemical mediators that erroneously signal the immune system to come to the skin and cause these patches and plaques that we see on the surface or cause the joint pains. Most recently, in the last 10 to 15 years, a big player has been something called tumor necrosis factor or TNF, which is a chemical very important in recruiting white blood cells to come into the skin and actually release more inflammatory chemicals to cause the disease. There are other cytokines that we know of, like one called interleukin-17, also very important, another one called interleukin-23, as well as other chemicals that are inside cells that can also be important for overexpressing psoriatic diseases. It gets pretty complicated, but many medicines that we have today are focused on these different inflammatory mediators to affect their course of action. So why is understanding the nature of the disease important to recognizing the different biologic pathways utilized for treating the disease? When we know which chemicals and which messengers secreted by our immune system cells are at fault for amplifying the disease of psoriasis, we can target medications to focus on blocking these certain chemicals. And that's what medicines like TNF-alpha inhibitors do. That's what medicines that are interleukin-17 inhibitors and interleukin-23 inhibitors do as well. They give us a point to focus on to block a specific chemical that we can dramatically reduce the expression of the disease. Great. And at MPF, we hear a lot from patients who become frustrated when a treatment stops working for them. Uh, can you please explain why this happens for some people but not all? That's a great question. And as of right now, we don't really know which treatment is going to work the best for which patient. Compared to 20 years ago, when we didn't have these highly specialized and safe medications, um, we would just throw the kitchen sink at people and hope that one of one of our current medications at that point worked. Now that we have these more specific medications, most people do respond to these medicines, but there are going to be those certain people who, for example, might respond really well to a tumor necrosis factor medicine or a TNF-alpha medicine, but not an interleukin-17 medicine and not an IL-23 medicine. We just don't know that as of now. So we usually start based on which drug might be in their insurance plan, which drug they have tried before or not tried before, and which drug might be best indicated for their series of symptoms that they have, for example, if they have bad arthritis or also have inflammatory bowel disease, etc. And is it true that not all psoriatic disease treatments are effective in the long term? 
Well, that's a great question too, and it again depends on the patient, and in many ways can depend on patient compliance. And when we talk about how well a medicine works over time, we talk about its durability. So if a medicine is durable, just like you think of the word as a perfect expression of what, you know, what we're describing, if something's durable, it lasts a long time. And so oftentimes that's in the hands of the patient. And what I mean by that is we have come to believe that certain medicines lose their durability if patients are not compliant with taking them, meaning that if a patient takes it for a couple months and gets better, takes a couple months off, and then starts it back again, that actually the body can develop resistance against the medicine, almost like a bacteria developing resistance against a, an antibiotic. What can happen with, with poor compliance is a medicine that could have been useful for five, 10 years may not work that long for a patient who doesn't take it in the right way, or maybe isn't being treated with the right dose of medication. Um, the, the point here is I have patients since the beginning of kind of the biologic age of medicines who've been on medicines like etanercept or adalimumab, which are both tumor necrosis factor TNF medicines, and they're still doing well eight, ten years later, seeing me every six months just coming in to shake my hand and get some blood tests, and they're doing great with no need for change. Then I have other patients who will use one of these meds for two years and then have to switch to a new category. Yeah, that makes sense. So could you say it's realistic for people to realize that at some point they may face the need to change treatments in the future? Yes, um, I think that's really something for patients to realize going into this, that treatment should be considered really ongoing, first of all, and that when patients ask me, well, how long am I going to have to take this biologic medicine or this other medicine? I really just say forever or until it doesn't work anymore. And oftentimes what happens is at some point, several years later, it might not work as well and we will switch them to something newer or a little bit different or augment the therapy. The point is we, we do have lots and lots of options for people. So can you please provide a few examples of treatments that tend to fail? So treatments that tend to fail are going to be those that are just really not sustainable for the patient. One great example would be, well, if we give a patient a really specialized or expensive medicine that one year is covered by their insurance and the next year it's not covered by their insurance. Um, so just by nature of the fact that they have to switch uh, medications, that medicine that they had to switch off of may not ever work quite as well as it did in the first place. So that might be considered a failure. Another thing that would be a failure would be to prescribe or recommend light therapy for a patient if really they can't get to your office two to three times a week for, for several weeks or months at a time to continue light therapy. Another treatment failure would be giving a patient a topical therapy, but just not in a dispensed amount that's great enough for them to use on a regular basis to the body surfaces that are affected. So not actually supplying them with the right amount of medicine 
Another would be not writing the correct dose for a biologic medicine, um, not setting adequate follow-up with patients to actually make sure they are taking medicines the right way. And so since we're talking about kind of other forms of treatment, um, can you talk a little bit about combination therapy? Is that another option to consider? Sure. Well, in the 80s and 90s and before that, when we didn't have fancy new biologic medicines, it was all about combination therapy, using topical medicines, using light therapy, using certain types of oral immune suppressant therapies. We still do this to some degree. And for example, um, combination therapies could mean using a topical steroid or a topical medicine plus having an at-home light machine that a patient uses themselves or comes to the office, plus using uh, a biologic medicine on a daily basis or one of the newer oral medicines like a Primalast, which is an oral psoriasis medicine, or an older school psoriasis medicine taken orally or by injection called methotrexate. Methotrexate is kind of an old-time anti-inflammatory or what we call a DMARD medicine that we've used for many, many years to treat arthritis and psoriasis that is often combined with biologic therapies like tumor necrosis factor um, or light very carefully or topical therapies. Um, even more of late, we will, if insurance will allow, we will combine one biologic, not with another biologic, but with an, with an oral, for example, like a primalast or something called acetretin, which is an oral vitamin A therapy. So there's lots of room to be creative if a patient is not doing as well as he or she wishes they were. But at the same time, we have so many new biologic therapies now that monotherapy, meaning treatment with one single medicine, is actually realistic and very successful for the majority of patients who choose to try a biologic therapy. Great, and you'd mentioned cost and insurance. If that is a, a barrier to treatment, what are some options available to help ensure treatment continues? Well, that's an, an amazingly current question because we're dealing in the United States with so many health insurance issues. I happen to have many patients who are self-employed who may do fine and, and live in the middle class zone, but could never afford to pay for these medications. And plus they're already paying a lot for their insurance, which might not cover the medication that they need. So I'm always very, very forthcoming about recommending patients seek every little bit of information about their healthcare plan in the fall before they commit to a new plan to find out what medicines might be covered and what choices they have. Not to mention reaching out to each pharma company or specifically to the pharma company of the drug that they use and asking what resources might be available to help them with either the copay or deductible buy downs or things like that to actually put it in an affordable zone for them. Uh, I'm very lucky because I have staff who's very knowledgeable about this and we really try to help people make the right decisions and get, get way in front of um, reaching a crisis situation where at the last minute the patient realizes they don't have access to the drug. But we can only do our best. I would say patients are sometimes the biggest obstacle because they procrastinate or they just don't, they don't take the time to make the right des decisions about their coverage. Mm -hmm. 
So if a, a person had to stop treatment due to insurance or because the treatment failed, is it feasible to consider going back on a treatment that previously they were on or rotating treatments every 12 to 24 months to reduce the development of resistance? Well, um, I wouldn't recommend going back on a treatment if it really was lackluster and didn't work very well. It wouldn't preclude me from recommending, let's say they failed one TNF-alpha inhibitor like etanercept, it wouldn't keep me from having them try a different medicine in that class, like say adalimumab or infliximab um, or even sertilizumab. In any case, we often will switch to a different category of medication and go to interleukin-17 or interleukin-23. But we don't tend to rotate back and forth because once we get a really good response on a medication, we really want to promote its durability and we don't typically change it unless for some reason there's an adverse event, some complete contraindication that comes up in the patient's health that would make that medicine not feasible or safe for them to take, or if there was just no way they could afford to take that specific medicine. Now, I would typically try to switch them to something similar in the same class if they were doing well on that. Oh, that's great. Um, so in your opinion, how essential is it for someone with psoriatic disease to be knowledge about their treatment options? I think it's extremely important for people to bring as much knowledge about treatments to the doctor's office and ask a lot of questions and instead of just saying, hey, whatever you think, doc, because when patients have a vested interest and some knowledge in what the treatments are, what the potential side effects or risks, risk benefits are to each drug. They ask me really great questions and can be advocates for themselves in their care. Um, there are support networks out there where patients can reach out and get support and the, the National Psoriasis Foundation is really a great one. I'd say typically patients are not so knowledgeable about the actual drugs other than what they've seen in commercials, but more so have strong feelings about what kind of side effects seem scary to them, um, what their goals are in terms of how clear they want to be, if they're willing to inject themselves with a needle, if they want to use a pill versus an injection, if they want to... Um, have no restrictions in terms of drinking alcohol versus really having it be important that they can maintain an active social life and, you know, drink on the weekends, etc. Um, many things like this that are social issues or past medical history related often dictate which class we use. Great. Now, switching gears a little bit, um, some new research about personalized medicine has been coming out, which is really exciting. Can you comment on that and talk a little bit about how helpful it would be to in testing plaque psoriasis in advance to be able to identify appropriate treatment options? Yes, this would really be a dream for us to be able to do. I think in the lab, people have been researching this and um, doing this for quite a while, but not putting it into clinical practice yet which would be sampling a piece of skin on someone's psoriasis and seeing which types of chemicals that we talked about, what, what these messengers are called cytokines, which may be overexpressed in that particular patient that could tell us, well, would they do better on a TNF-alpha inhibitor, an interleukin-17, 
or an interleukin-23 inhibitor. And that way, all the guesswork would be removed and we could start at the get-go um, saying, hey, you're definitely an interleukin-23 prominent patient and this is what's gonna work the best for you. And again, it would be something very helpful from a coverage standpoint that could justify to the insurance company which is the appropriate treatment. Um, I even have rheumatology colleagues in Chicago who are doing similar types of testing from the joint capsules in patients with psoriatic arthritis um, because even though I'm a dermatologist and of course my life is spent treating psoriasis on the skin, I really do value the help of my rheumatology colleagues because psoriatic arthritis can be a much more severe expression of psoriatic disease with permanent complications of joints that can really reduce a person's ability to work with their hands, walk normally, exercise, etc. So it's very, very important to get as quick of a start choosing the right drug as possible before any permanent damage is done to the joints. In the skin, we don't really see any type of permanent damage done to the skin by psoriatic plaques. Great. And in closing, what do you feel is the most important step a person can take if they find themselves in a situation where their treatment has stopped working? And uh, why is it important to maintain treatment? So maintaining treatment is very important. I'm going to tell you for several reasons. The most important would be if a patient does have psoriatic arthritis and if they're not maintaining treatment and their joints are stiff and hurting and inflamed, then like I said, they can have permanent joint damage that they will never recover. Um, sometimes even surgery will not help later in life to, to repair the joint back to its original state. So that's one thing. The other thing that we really seem to think is that ongoing treatment for people who at least have moderate psoriasis might very well reduce their risk for other diseases that sometimes run hand in hand with psoriasis, whether that's inflammatory bowel disease or arthritis, but also metabolic conditions like heart disease, um, high blood pressure, hypercholesterolemia. So though the studies are not a slam dunk, we do think that Treating psoriasis and keeping it under good control is probably good at reducing inflammation in a person's body uh, altogether and may, may, we think, extend longevity for patients with chronic inflammatory diseases like psoriasis that might shorten their lifespan. That's just anecdotal, but it's, it is what a lot of us in, in dermatology and rheumatology do believe about these medicines. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Horn, for providing an informative, insightful uh, look into why treatments stop working. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Soundbites on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.